to thank the children and their hardworking uh, director, Julia, for uh, the uh, wonderful music at the beginning of the service. If this would be an incentive for the rest of you never to arrive late again, because if you didn't, weren't here on time, you might have missed something wonderful. I also feel like I should commend Kiefer for reading that long passage of genealogies. So we had two outstanding performances this morning already. Uh, I, I have a question for the children as we begin, and that would be in the Christmas story, and maybe you've seen a Christmas play, there's one really important person who never ever speaks. Who would that be? Do the angels speak? Does Mary speak? Does Zechariah speak? Does Elizabeth speak? Do the shepherds speak? Who doesn't speak? Well, the baby makes, yeah, that's true. He speaks later, that's fair enough. I thought I might get that. Who is it? <laughs> yeah, you? <laughs> I'll tell you. Okay. Jo Jesus is a really good Sunday school answer. I've got to do. Joseph, you think of him, okay? Here's Joseph. Uh, never in the Bible, as far as I know, is there a recorded word from Joseph, even though he is a major character. And today I want to cover all of Matthew chapter 1. And just as God chose Mary, and she had a very special role, and she responded with faith and with grace, God also chose Joseph. And the choice of Joseph was a really important choice. And I'm going to say how important it was for two reasons. First of all, we'll see in the verses that Kiefer has already graciously read for us, in the genealogy, the genealogy is the family line of, of, of Jesus, that Joseph had to be from the right family. He had to have the right genealogy. And so the, his family line is described there. We'll, we'll explain why that's so important. And the second thing is he has the right character, which is we're going to cover in verses 18 to 25. So just like if you want to hire somebody, you want the right man for the job, or woman now, but in the same way, Joseph is the right man. And even though he never speaks audibly in Scripture, he actually has a very powerful message for us today, as we will see, by his actions. Now, I read through the Bible every year, and I have to admit, there are a lot of these genealogies, which is what Kiefer just read, these, this person beget, that person beget, that person beget, that person and I will confess, when I'm reading through that, like in the book of Chronicles or something, I can go pretty fast scanning through that. It's like not, not the most exciting part of the Bible to read when there's David and Goliath and Daniel and all that other stuff. Yet, all Scripture is God-breathed, and it's profitable for us. And say, well, why does Matthew begin his account of the birth of Jesus with the story of who this Joseph is? Now, there are people today who are kind of interested in their genealogies, right? Like, I'm particularly, Caroline has descended from Charlemagne. If you want to get her autograph after the service, uh, you can. She also is descended from a Revolutionary War hero. And so people can enjoy that. My grandfather actually spent time in jail, but that's, <laughs> I'm married up. But Matthew begins this way because this is the most important man who ever lived, and he has a claim upon the throne of Israel. And this fits so well for those of you who are in the adult Sunday school class as we talk about Jesus as king, 
And the fact that Joseph descended the right way, it proves that he is, Jesus is the true king of Israel. That's part of Matthew's point. You say, well, okay, what's the benefit of reading all of this? And there are a couple things I would bring out. One is, our God is a God who keeps his promises. The genealogy in Luke, which I think is probably of Mary, um, begins with Adam. And Kiefer had us read from Genesis how God promised in the presence of Adam and Eve that one day there would come a, a man born of a woman who would crush and kill that serpent. And that was pointing ahead to Christ. And, and so this genealogy uh, focuses upon uh, David and Abraham especially. It begins with Abraham and that God promised Abraham uh, made promises to Abraham, and I'll just read one of those briefly in Genesis chapter 12, when God first called Abraham to leave his country and go to Canaan. He said, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abraham was promised that one day, not just his own descendants, but all of the earth would be blessed through his descendant. And of course, that looks ahead to Christ. And so this is a record that God made that promise to Abraham so long ago, and, and God kept that promise. And the promises of God to Abraham are fulfilled. And then the next, you know, in verse 1, it says, the son of David. And, and just as well, uh, Pastor Daniel preached from 2 Samuel 7. And this was the Davidic covenant. And God made a promise to David that David would have a descendant who, not like Saul, who was temporary, but he would have a descendant that I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Well, this genealogy that Kepha read for us has lots of kings in it, but they all died. And there had to be a king who would live forever and would reign forever. And so God made that great promise to David and this is a record that God kept the promise. And, and part of keeping the promise over so many years is that all these people needed to have babies. They had need, and you need to have sons. And remember, it started off really rough with Abraham, right? When he and his wife were very, very old, older than anybody in this room. And yet, finally, when they were very old, God gave Isaac as a miracle child. And, and, and so it goes, and, and you have... The, this long record, and at the, in verse 17, it talks about 14 generations to 14 to 14, but, you know, from Abraham probably being around 2000 B.C., and then to David around 1000 B.C., and then after that, you have a bunch of people we haven't heard of, you know, some of the kings, but even when Israel was exiled, when Israel and their sin were kicked out of the land, God's promise still continues, and, and so this is something very glorious. And I love at the end when you get to Eliud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Mathan, Mathan, the father of Jacob, Jacob was the father of Joseph. Do you know anything about those people other than they're in the Bible? We don't. What, what once was a line of kings from David it had sunk to obscurity. And the Old Testament talks about how from the stump of, of David's family there would arise you know, a rejuvenation. And so when Israel is now oppressed and under the Romans and there is no king and hardly anybody even knows who the king might have been, here's in a carpenter's shack, this man Joseph, who is descended from David, but he's just a lowly person, 
God is going to keep his promise and is going to bring a Messiah for his people. So God keeps his promises. Another application of the genealogy would be God keeps his promises in spite of human sin. And you go through, right? And the the names we know, we know bad things about. And the names we don't know, there were bad things about them too. And something Kiefer talked about in in Sunday school is the record of the kings of Israel uh, from David on. You know, David seemed like he was doing pretty well, but then there was Bathsheba. And, you know, on it goes with, you know, Abraham nearly gave away his wife a couple of times. And God's promise is not hindered even by human sin and failure. God continued to keep his promise. And even when Israel was disobedient and was sent into into exile, and I'm not even going to go through all the sin of all these people that we know about. As you read the Old Testament, it's there. Makes a guy who has a grandfather who was in prison feel a little better about things, I guess. Um, Another really interesting thing in the genealogy is that the women... Uh, are included. And, and, but the women who are included, again, aren't the ones you think, oh yeah, that's the kind of thing you would have expected from Abraham. You have, in, in verse 3, you have, let's see, so verses 5 and 6. So you have, Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Well, who was Rahab? Well, she was an immoral woman in Jericho, and yet she is an outsider. And so there's two things going on here. One is that you have Ruth and you have Rahab who are outsiders. They weren't descendants of Abraham, and yet just as the New Testament shows how God grafts in the Gentiles. And so here in the genealogy, the women who are mentioned, that they're grafted in from the outside and made part of the people of God, looking ahead to the Gentiles coming in. Uh, And of course, those who were guilty of sin or there were sinful unions. Uh, Tamar is another ugly example. And yet God shows mercy and grace to sinners. Now, one other big question, and maybe even as occurred to the children, is, is Joseph really the father of Jesus? Well, no, not really. Uh, he's the, we know that God is the father of Jesus, and Matthew makes it clear in more than one place, we'll get to the next section, that uh, Joseph is not literally the father, yet the point of the passage is Joseph is like the adoptive father. And adoption is a very important concept in the New Testament. In Galatians 4, we're adopted into Christ. And in Luke, it talks, it even refers to him as Jesus' father in a sense. And I have friends who are adopted, I meet people who are adopted, and they will refer to the man who raised them as their father, even though he was not genetically, biologically related. And so in that sense, as Joseph is now going to, in a sense, in a human sense, be the earthly father of Jesus, then it's important that he have that right uh, as the one descended from the king. Through Joseph, Jesus has legal claim to the throne of Israel. So a couple of points of application before we moved on to the rest of the passage. One is just to to marvel when you read this family history, to marvel at the humility of the condescension of the Son of God. In Philippians 2, when Paul is exhorting us to think of others as more important than ourselves, he says, 
that follow this example of Christ, who though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be clung to, but emptied himself. And so here is God the Son, eternal, eternal one, chooses in history to become one of us in spite of the bad record before, uh, as we're going to see, in order to save us. Another principle in this passage is that God keeps his promises. For thousands of years, from Adam, you know, 6,000 years ago approximately, I believe, and Abraham 4,000 years ago, and David 3,000 years ago, uh, people wonder, is this ever going to happen? Is this Messiah you know, sadly, even today, the Jews are, some Jews are thinking, where's the Messiah? Well, he's come, and he's coming again. But God keeps his promises. Now, a promise we think of is the Bible says many times, Jesus Christ is coming back again. And he's going to come not in humility, but in glory. In 2 Peter 3, Peter even says, well, some ask, well, where is the promise of his coming? And he even says, well, here's why. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. His delay is a mercy perhaps even to some of you who have not yet believed that you would believe before he comes again and brings judgment. But God, God's promise that one day this earth will be remade and that Christ will come and he will reign as king in glory forever with a new heaven, new earth, that promise is certain in spite of all appearances. If you can imagine how unlikely it would have seemed in the days of Joseph and Mary that a Messiah would come to Israel being so broken down and humbled. And so, other things, just we're thankful, we're like Ruth, that we're brought in from afar. We're, we're thankful for so many things here. But I, I want to move on to the next point. So the first point is, is that Joseph is chosen by God, and he has the right family line. He has the right genealogy, and that was necessary. But the second point is, I think, even more important, and that is that Joseph is chosen by God because he has the right character. And we get this beginning in, in verse 18. In verses 18 to 25, uh, the angel in a dream comes to Joseph, just like the angel in the book of Luke came to Mary. And yeah, so why is Joseph's role in this so important? Well, Mary needs a husband, right? In those days, women who were not married shouldn't have babies, and there would be great scandal or even worse attached to that. Uh, likewise, when we get to chapter 2, and we see in Luke as well, when, when the family is threatened and Herod wants to put Jesus, you know, find the baby, put him to death, that Joseph leads the family to safety in, in Egypt. So Mary needs a husband, but she didn't need just any husband. She needs the right husband. It's kind of like in the book of Ruth. Ruth needed a husband. She got Boaz. She got a prince of a man. And, and Joseph is a prince of a man. God chose him to be the adoptive father. And so beginning in verse 18, of the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. And then it says, but he, when he considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him. So what do you see about Joseph's character? Well, he's a righteous man. He's a godly man, uh, probably unusual in those days. And yet Joseph is a righteous man like 
you know, many of us thinking when you were single and anticipating marriage and you know, loving your fiance, what a shock it must have been to Joseph somehow to learn, apparently not yet from the angel, that Mary is pregnant. I don't know if she conveyed that word to him or where it came from, but that was a horrible shock to him. And part of it is he, he wasn't comfortable marrying someone who had been immoral. And so this is it's just got to be a great heartbreak to him. But then you see verse 19, he's also a very merciful man, being a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her. Think about that, okay? And Joseph had options, right? In John chapter 8, when a woman is caught in adultery, the Jews want Jesus to approve of her being stoned to death for her sexual immorality. In Genesis, one of the forebears of Jesus, uh, Judah, when he thought his daughter-in-law had been immoral, he wanted to have her burned until he realized it was him who was the father. And, and so here's Joseph, and not being a man who wants to take revenge, you know, not to shame her, not to call justice upon her. What's the most merciful thing he can do but to encourage her, go away, have the baby, you know, I'm not going to marry you. But he's a very merciful man under those circumstances. And even that has application to us is that, again, from what Joseph knew at this point, Mary had horribly wronged him. He, he did, it wasn't true, but that's what he would have thought. We all have people who hurt us and disappoint us and break our hearts for real. And yet I think Joseph is an example to us, even though he speaks not, of showing mercy. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Paul writes to the Ephesians. He also says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor be put away from you. So Joseph is a merciful man. He's also a careful man. He didn't rush into things. He says, when he considered this, so he's, he's thinking about it. What am I going to do? Uh, well, then, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, all of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So the next, which is probably the most important thing about Joseph's character, is Joseph is a man who believes the word of God. The angel comes and reveals this to him, and he actually stands out. His silence in one sense is a testimony, right? In that he receives the word of God without question. When Zechariah was told he was going to have John the Baptist, how will I know this for certain? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Mary said, how can this be about her conception since I am a virgin? Throughout history, billions of babies are being conceived and all but one involved a man. And yet Joseph believes and Joseph acts on his faith. In verse 24, he takes Mary as his legal wife, believing she is pure. He forgoes the blessings and privileges of marriage until Jesus is born. And then later Jesus does have other brothers, as we read about in the Bible, in the ordinary way, but he protects and provides for Mary and Jesus. And 
this is where even though Joseph doesn't have any lines, it, we don't hear what Joseph may have said, Joseph, in a sense, is a very powerful testimony to the virgin birth. And this is something that I would assume everyone who is a born-again Christian already embraces. Even many people who aren't born-again Christians acknowledge the virgin birth, but in all of the history of the world, there's only one person who truly is born of a virgin, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And you could say from one standpoint, Mary knew she was a virgin. Joseph took it by faith. And yet, that's where I said he, he speaks the reality that an angel spoke to him, and he trusted Mary, and he speaks to us. He is a worthy son of David, a worthy son of kings, and he speaks to us. If ever you had cause to doubt the virgin birth, Joseph tells you it's true. To make one small application, here's Joseph who never says anything, and yet he's such a blessed and wonderful servant of God. In the church, we have lots of people like that too, don't we? We have people who never stand up here and speak, or even teach in an adult class or something like that. They work the sound system, they work in the nursery, they serve in so many ways, and you don't have to have a lot to say to be able to serve the Lord and testify of his grace and of your faith in him. And so, one more reason to appreciate Joseph, to appreciate people like our deacons, the women who serve in so many different ways, the people who prepare our meals, the communion, so much. So, we've seen so far that Joseph is the right man for the job. He, he has the right family background. He has the right genealogy. The genealogy is important. We see also that he has the right character. He's a man of righteousness and mercy a man of faith and obedience. He has a crucial role to play in the story. And then, but he's not the most important character in Matthew 1. <laughs> so we've got to talk about him. That the point of the passage is through Joseph's testimony, we know that Jesus is the true son of God, son of Abraham, son of David. He is born of a virgin. And we talked this morning in Sunday school both about kings and prophets. And the prophet Isaiah is quoted in verse 23. Then the angel said this was to, to fulfill what was spoken to the prophet. Behold, the virgin will be with child and will bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The conception of Jesus is miraculous. His human life began. It's actually, it'd be more accurate to say the virgin conception and birth. And it was necessary. It was necessary certainly for one reason, probably for another. One reason it was necessary is because the Old Testament said it would be the seed of the woman who crushes the serpent, that the virgin would have a child. Many would also posit possibly that, uh, that because a man was not involved, the sin nature was not passed down. However, God kept him sinless without the taint of human sin. Then the name is given to him, Emmanuel which means God with us. This was also a bit in Sunday school today and in previous weeks in Christology, in that the, we, and we said it in our confessions today, right? That Jesus Christ is 100% God and 100% man. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Paul says, all the fullness of deity dwelt in him in bodily form. And actually, 
in some ways, it's easier to picture that when he's calling Lazarus out of the tomb and healing the sick and working miracles. But the, the embryo in the womb is God the Son. The baby is God the Son. And he is fully God. What a mystery. Well, why was it necessary? He also is fully human. John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory as the one only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, and that He is 100% man. And, and that is also, especially in the book of Hebrews, it was necessary that He become one of us so that He could bear our sin as a man dying for men, a, a human being. And that was what the other part gets to in verse 21, you shall bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from his sin. It was necessary he be fully God and fully man, so that as a man he could die as a substitute for sinners, for men, for women, but also being fully God, that he would be without sin and would be able to pay the infinite penalty that we all would deserve. And it's, it's something absolutely marvelous. I also think about, you know, the name was given, you shall call his name Jesus. Uh, when Carolyn and I were expecting children, we were so old-fashioned, we never wanted to know what was coming until it came out. And so we would always have two baby names ready. We never got to use the girl name. We had three boys. Well, they didn't need to worry about a girl name. <laughs> and they didn't even need to wor worry what boy name to choose. The, the name was chosen, Jesus, which is pointing to him as the new Joshua, as the new Savior, the new deliverer of his people. That's his mission. And this is also very, very important. I think one of the most confusing things about the way the world celebrates Christmas, I mean, on one sense, the majority have just pushed Jesus totally out of the picture, and people have holiday parties, and it's just a festival without Christ in it at all. But sometimes even when they quote little bits like peace on earth and goodwill to man, they make it so humanistic. Like Christmas just reminds us of the goodness in everybody, and how we can make all the wars stop, and through human effort and goodness, we can all get along, and we can feed the poor, and everything's going to be great. Actually, what the Bible actually says is completely the opposite of that. There's, the coming of Jesus is not about him just teaching us how to be nicer people. It's not about uh, him giving humanity the power to make a, a great world where we don't need God and can just make peace and all get along and all of that. It says we're full of sin. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is, is death. And the scripture says in Romans 8, we were slaves to sin. Romans 6 as well, that we, we were powerless against sin and so we, we have the guilt of sin and we have the corruption of sin and we can't even stop sinning. That's the great need of humanity. It's not education or economics or politics or even ending human wars, because as long as there is sin, there will be war. The great need of humanity is he will save his people from their sin. That Christ came to die for his people once for all, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. When he begins his public ministry, uh, John the Baptist sees him and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so you know, Jesus, from his conception, before he even was born, it was made clear his mission was a rescue mission. His, his mission was that God has set his affection upon his people, 
and that God is determined to save us. The only way we could be saved, the only way we could be saved is that God would become one of us, would stand in our place, deliver us from the power of sin and death, that Christ would die on the cross to be punished in our place. The Lord laid our guilt upon him and then raised from the dead in glory, having accomplished his mission. And that was revealed from the very beginning. Jesus is incomparable. Uh, we were walking in our neighborhood, Carolyn and I often do, and you see all these yard displays. And there are sometimes, I mean, some people have gone to Home Depot and they bought everything, right? And they've got the deer and the Santas and the Frosties and all this other stuff. Sometimes in, in the the panoply of all the different stuff in the yard. There might be a little manger scene over there. We were walking, I think it was yesterday, and, and Caroline saw in one yard nothing but a manger scene. And she, oh, those people must be Christians. <laughs> that he's incomparable to all those other figures. He is infinitely above Santa who's a myth. That he's, he's real. He really does know everything about you. He really is the giver of good gifts, but it's not to good boys and girls. It's that he shows mercy to sinners like us through loving us when we didn't deserve it, dying for us, being raised from the dead and raising us up with him. So, I began by asking the children who doesn't speak, and so we finally got to Joseph as the guy who doesn't speak, and yet I would say there's a sense in which Joseph does speak to you today. Joseph tells you and challenges you with the person of Christ. Who is Jesus? Well, Joseph says, through his faith, by taking Mary as his wife, he is born of a virgin. He is God with us. He is the one who saves his people from their sin. And this is what matters most as we think of the incarnation. It's not about the gifts we give or receive among each other. It's not about all the other distractions. But the challenge would be, who is Jesus to you? Joseph had faith to believe. Do you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you believe he is God the Son born of a virgin? Do you believe that you are a sinner who needs forgiveness and grace that only could be provided through God the Son, the one who became flesh and died in the place of his people. Scripture says, if you will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved. As Joseph had faith, if you will have that faith, God will save you. You can express that faith through baptism, but you're saved through the work of Christ in which you believe and by his work alone. And then for those of us who are believers today, as we partake of the Lord's Supper together, even the Lord's Supper reminds us, right? Jesus said of the, the bread, this is my body. That God the Son took upon himself human flesh so that he would shed his blood for the remission, for the forgiveness of sin of all of his people. And the greatest application is to believe and to praise God for such a wonderful salvation that God sent his Son into the world, born of a virgin, to save his people from his sin, from our sin. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the revelation in Scripture. We thank you for a man like Joseph who descended from Abraham and David and had faith 
showed mercy, obeyed you. Father, we thank you for the message Joseph received of who Jesus Christ is, our Savior. Help us today to, to worship him who is worthy of all praise, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, if there are people here today who have maybe even thought they believed in the virgin birth but have never actually bowed the knee to personally trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sin and followed him, Lord, that you would work in their hearts today to do that very thing before they leave here today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.